Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, and dedicated to silencing the chatter about what women should and shouldn't be doing as they age. Here to bring you stories about women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, women who are leading inspiring lives that make a difference to themselves and others, are Catherine Marino and Gail Zalitsky. Hi, I'm Catherine. And I'm Gail. And we are the active voice of Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Welcome to our weekly podcast. Our mission is to showcase vital women between the ages of 70 to 100 plus who shatter the myth that we become irrelevant as we age. These women lead fulfilling lives for themselves and others. Visit our website, womenover70.com, where you can access all the episodes. We also invite you to join our monthly podcast club. And we welcome speaking to your organization or group on Aging Reimagined. If women aging is a market you would like to reach, consider sponsoring an episode. Finally, if you are an author with a book about women, check out our book promotion opportunity. And today we are so excited to be in conversation with Dr. Beth Hagens. Beth, age 74, is a leukemia survivor and an insatiably curious Los Angeles native now living on the coast of Maine. Interviewing is a way of life for her, and she's said to have sat down to chat with a performing dog on a recent visit to (laughs) Vietnam. Since 1972, Beth has remained inspired by her adult students in highly innovative university programs. She pursues anthropology as an interdisciplinary exploration of the arts of consciousness. And her writings have ranged from the geometry of the divine feminine to earth energies and the planetary grid, the latter having been featured on ancient aliens. Miraculously, she says, she did not lose her university position over that one. Today, we will talk with Beth about her passion to keep inspired and sane by continuously making things, a play script, for example, or a violin performance labyrinths, indigenous sound-making instruments, and even HGTV's ever-popular open concept, Hole in the Wall. She and Wayne, her partner of 19 years, are 13 years into a quarter-acre experimental forest garden, now feeding neighborhood bees, birds, bugs, butterflies, deer, squirrels, voles, and moles. Welcome, Beth, to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Thank you. Beth, um, you always wanted to be an anthropologist, and you told me on your own terms. Can you tell us what that means to you? Well, I did well in school because I, when I was in um, younger grades, because I could listen to what the teachers had to say, but I was a very poor reader, and I enjoyed doing projects. And I never read very well. I just, um, my eye, I had trouble focusing. I don't think I was dyslexic or anything like that. But um, playing the violin was a way to get around, around Mm -hmm. having to read. And Mm -hmm. when I went to college, I went on a music scholarship. But I realized that I was going to have to do theory and all that. And I, you know, went through a couple of majors the first year, I didn't find one. And somebody said, well, if you really like people, go see the sociologist. And I went up to the to that uh, office and he wasn't there. But the anthropologist was. And when he stood up, 
I swear his hands came almost to his knees. <laughs> and I thought, that's my man. That's what I want. You know? I, want I want somebody who's, who's got this energy. And he, um, he was wild. This was in Los Angeles in the um, late 60s. And he had brought Wolfman Jack and Carlos Castaneda and people like that to the campus to um, teach us what, what it was, you know, like what anthropology was. You know, it was an inquiry into, into um, magic and science. And um, I never left, I never really wanted to be a theorist at the time. And I didn't want to, um, you know, become famous for publishing in anthropology journals. I just wanted to do it. Mm. And I was lucky enough to find jobs where they were looking for experimental professors. It's a, it's, I was just going to say that I, I was an anthropology major also, but no one ever ex explained anthropology to me as inquiry into magic and science. I wish I had had that sense of it. So thank you for that. So you said you you got to to um, you had you had positions that enabled you to draw on your your anthropology sense of things. What what were some of those? What did that lead you to? Well, when I started out, I was teaching at an experimental university in Illinois, and um, they really said, "Teach anything that you want to. If you can find eight students that want to do it." Um, let's do it. And this only lasted for two years until the state said, well, we think that this, this is going to be formalized. <laughs> now. But, but it, that started where I, I wanted to study with the students popular culture, which at the time was, um, you know, like it was a new inquiry or nobody had really thought of television except for Marshall McLuhan as being such a cultural force. And the, um, the primary concept in anthropology then was culture. But it was always defined as the tools. And, the, and I thought, well, TV is a tool. And it was just a way to tie together um, what we were living as, you know, 20-year-olds in the 70s. And um, seeing that it was that it was a, an alive phenomenon it's a, it sounds funny to say that now because it's it's everywhere mm -hmm. uh, I, we, we had a solar energy um, project going for years there at the university where we, we cooked our food on solar cookers that we made mm -hmm. and the class I, I as often as I could I held it outside because I always imagined anthropology as being you know, in a jungle <laughs> yeah, that's a horrible thing to say, but that's how I thought of it. Mm -hmm. And um, the students seem to like getting out of the rut. Mm -hmm. And I guess anthropology sort of takes you out of out of what you take for granted, and then you see it. But I don't think you see your culture until you get away from it. Mm -hmm. Good point. Right. In, so, do you want to tell us a little bit about your work with the um, innovative? university programs? Were you able to apply your anthropology perspectives in that work? Oh, my, my favorite one was at um, the Union Institute. It used to be mm -hmm. called the, um, was it the Union Graduate School. And um, I went there just as an interdisciplinary anthropologist. 
And the way that that school worked was that um, the students designed their own PhD program. Mm -hmm. Are you are you guys familiar with it? I am. I because I I uh, that's actually how I met you because you were oh right because uh, you are friends chairing uh, Susan's committee and I was on her committee with you. Well, it, it I'm not was, familiar with it. I please explain it further for me. Well, it doesn't really exist anymore, but the idea was that, that the challenge of a PhD was to create what you would become a philosopher of, you know, because it was a, a, a PhD. And you proposed what your learning would be, how you would demonstrate it, and then you would do some kind of a project demonstrating excellence in that that would be the equivalent of a dissertation or you could write a dissertation. Uh -huh. And um, it was approved all the way down the line by the, by the government and by you know, the Department of Education and it was licensed in Ohio. Um, but usually what, what, how I got to do the anthropology was first of all, I focused as much as I could on um, working as the chair for students who were, or who were international. Like I had a student oh, yeah. in Hawaii and I had a student in Papua New Guinea and one in Australia, one in Brazil. And um, the school would twice during their program where they, it was all, you know, they found the people that they wanted to work with to get the learning. They named adjuncts to their committee who could evaluate whether that learning was, was viable. You know, it was, it, it was rugged but it also really gave the students a chance to see what they wanted to do. And they didn't have to meet criteria. They had to meet their own criteria. Mm -hmm. And they had, they had really tough teams to evaluate whether or not they had done that. Mm -hmm. And for, instead of having an oral, we would have what they called a, a, a certification meeting where they brought Two, two faculty members from outside the university, two peers going through the program at the time, and their chair to a meeting where the student lived. Oh. And so we, and this was, you know, back when flights were possible to take within, you know, a couple of hours time. <laughs> and we'd, so, we'd, we'd, meet there for, for, we'd meet for a whole weekend where the student, you know, we would eat well, we would talk, the school paid for the, for all the accommodations, and we really got to know each other. And you could feel the excitement of this individual culture building up around the student's inquiry. Mm -hmm. And, and that's what, what drove the program and the learning forward. And that's really how I've always felt anthropology worked. You would go to a place that was unfamiliar, and you would find out what excited you and mutually excited them, and then you went from there. Well, Beth, you've been doing that your entire life, I think, just um, looking at all the, the range of interests that you have and activities that you're involved in. And could you, just, could you give us some highlights about some of the these creative inquiry endeavors that you've been involved in and you're always making things? What, what, what really stands out for you? Well, I suppose this thing that they call the planetary grid was um, was was very important. Um, it was when I had been teaching in the environmental sciences college at Governor State, 
doing all that that stuff that I talked about at the beginning of this interview. And suddenly Reagan was elected and the school was kind of under the thumb of the um, electric utilities in Illinois. And my dean came in and said, well, Beth, we're ending the College of Environmental Applied Sciences. And if we can find a place for you, you will teach hot and taught anthropology. And mm. I thought, oh, no, I'm not. But I didn't, <laughs> you know, I didn't know what I was going to do because at that time I hadn't gone to Union. I hadn't traveled internationally. And it occurred to me one day that I'd been studying the sun and I saw this picture of the earth with a geodesic dome over it. And somebody had said that that mapped the flight of birds and um, rivers and mountains and cultural groups. And I thought, I'm just going to shift my focus from solar energy to earth energy. Mm -hmm. And I, um, at the time, I, I, ma I married a guy who was um, a geometer at the University of Illinois. And he had the same kind of crazy sense about building stuff. He was an industrial designer. And we started making models of that earth. And literally, we did nothing else practically we built a few solar, you know, domes on the side, but we we researched that grid and presented on it for 14 years. Wow. And I'm still working on it. I mean, I'm looking at my study and I I've applied it to the sky now. But mm. I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight globes that I can see from my desk. You know, <laughs> all, all filled with you know different tape and colors and lights and it it just that that's my favorite project i'm still working on all of that and where where do you see that going what, what is what's your is there a a discovery point what, what what's propelling you to keep working on this well the figure that we that um a couple of our three russians i actually met one of them do you know do you guys know chris bird no. Have you ever heard of yeah. him? Mm -mm. He wrote a book in the um, 70s called The Secret Life of Plants. And mm. he published an article on the Russians, on a, a small group of Russians who uh, were exploring this idea that there was a geometry to the earth that was meaningful and was based on Plato. And um, we went to see him, Bill and I went to see him. And he said, well, here, you can have all my research. and." this is ancient stuff. I'd like to hook you up with uh, with Russian researchers. And they, so I went to Moscow to meet them. And it was something that was, it, it's still consuming their, their lives over there. You know, that underneath all the, all the politics, there's this very avid earth energies group that ties back to the um, writings of Plato and the Timaeus, mm. where he introduces the concept of um the importance of a triangle and i never i never knew any of this but i think it's um that the the grid that we work the that's what we call the the geometric model of grid it's identical to um this quasi crystal that now is being called buckminster fullerene mm -hmm. and once you have a once i had a model of the earth as a living thing on the scale of, you know, a micro, a nano thing. It just made, 
it, all of a sudden, everything had a different meaning. And people who, who somehow get on that track, that's who, who reads my stuff. That they, you know, sometimes they'll, they'll write me and they'll say, I had a dream of that, of that dodecahedron that you made. And, and another one will call and say that, um, they, that something had told them that they had to call me and tell me that they had this dream about geometry, you know, and it's, it's been, um, it's not exactly an ego thing. It's just that it helps me with my own struggle with spirituality. Because mm. mm. uh, some people, some Christians think that this is the work of the devil. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. You know what I mean, don't you? I think so. But say a little bit more about uh, the connection with, with spirituality. Well, when I when I got the leukemia, this will this will sound so crazy. You know, I just I don't go to church. I, I've played in churches all my life, but I'm not. I I didn't find the mythology very attractive to me, and I had to choose a location to um to get chemo. And I <laughs> I went. I looked around here. There was one up the road from us, and I thought, no, I don't want to do that. And I somebody told me there was one over in the town about half an hour away so I drove over there and I walked inside the place and I thought this is this feels like a ski lodge I'm going here (laughs) you know I mean really just had that vibe to it and I came back home and for some reason I was you know inside of Google Earth looking at the grid and one of there's a there's a particular type of um line in the grid that it's just turned out all my life I've I've been attracted to living right near it and the thing, you know, I, I went from Google Earth down to Google Maps, and this exact kind of, of grid line went right through that treatment center. Mm. Oh, and I really? mean, there's, there's, there's like, the closest one is like 100 miles from here, besides that one. You know, they're, just, they're not common at all. And there it was, right going through the treatment center. <laughs> Wait on I looked at each other and figured, okay, well, we'll do that. You know, it, it, it made me think, you know, it was just like the, when I got my diagnosis, um, I knew enough geography from having looked at all these lines all over the world that the, the doctor who came in to um, tell me that I had the disease um, arrived just as I was getting an email from somebody that had a picture of this gorgeous bird in it. And I looked at the bird and it said, it's the the healing bird, female bird from Tajikistan. And this woman opens her mouth, the doctor, and she's from Tajikistan. And she looked at the mm-hmm. bird and said, <laughs> that's America. <laughs> you know, and so I thought, okay, it's a sign. I'm taking her. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But it's that kind of stuff is what's so, you know, like it makes me think there is a larger picture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can you say a little bit about what impact um, living with leukemia has had on, on your life? Um, it, it, it's, it's made me much more aware that there is a spiritual dimension that I had just literally thought I I didn't need her and didn't exist. That's been the biggest change. I was in bed one night right after I had the first chemo session or first four days. You know, it was rugged. But um, I woke up in the middle of the night 
and I felt ice on my face, you know, coming down like snow. And I heard my own voice at the end of the bed saying, I am cured. I am cured mm-hmm. said it four times. And then the ice came back on my face and I went to sleep. And um, in the morning, I just decided that was real. Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest thing that's happened that I decided I could trust my own wisdom mm-hmm. or whatever it is, you know, that you, you need an anchor. And I really didn't, I was open to absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. And it's good. nice not having to read dissertations all the time. I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you on that. Um, I must admit, Beth, I'm sorry. Yeah, Beth, that uh, uh, I've never heard anthropology described in these terms. <laughs> loving every moment of it because it's giving me a whole new uh, perspective on on how to see anthropology. And and I noticed that you um, you know you you like to make things. And and so you you mentioned now that you play in the church. So does that does that have to do with your violin? And yeah, that's what I used other to do. Things yeah. you make. <laughs> well, I make so much stuff; it's kind of ludicrous. <laughs> um, the that anthropologist that I was telling you about um, in my when I was in college, there was one day in class where he came in. And he was lighted up like like he had a, I mean, it was like he had seen God or something. I mean, he was just so excited. And he was talking about the men sitting around the fire in Australia, um, rubbing kangaroo fat on their chiringas. Mm. And it really, the way he was sitting, it looked like, um, you know, the, they had their chiringa between their legs. And it really <laughs> looked very strange. But I ne- I never forgot him saying that about um, all these ecstatic men with their with their bull they're called bull roars, mm-hmm. bull roars, and I had looked and looked um, for information on him and there really wasn't much, and so I I had to take a leave from school because I'd gotten Lyme disease about fifteen years ago, and. Um, I decided that I'd heal myself making bull roars, making replicas of bull roars because they're found all around the world. If you haven't ever seen one, they're like, um, you know, like a 12-inch ruler with a hole in the end and the, the little boys would put a string on it and swing it and it makes a buzzing sound. Oh. Mm-hmm. That's a bull roar. Oh. <laughs> and since then, I there after I made my, my replicas, I, mean, I made about, 200 of them, I think, all painted and carved and, you know, went out and bought <laughs> bought carving set and, a, you know, just huge thing. I, I then had a student who was um, working with um, Eastern mythologies and we worked together for a whole semester and the, the rituals and the languaging of what's done around the world with bull roars matches what what the, the sacred writing like in Sumerian that she was studying with weaving. Mm. Mm. And 
then, you know, it's all, they always say that, oh, well, the, you know, the men must have thought up the bull roar. But what I really think, and this was her idea, that um, there was probably a little kid sitting at his mother's knee, you know, back, and he, he got her, um, her shuttle, which would have had a, a string attached to it to weave with, and started spinning it and driving her crazy. <laughs> That's great. But I think that's really might be where they came from. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Makes sense. That's a plausible explanation. Yes. But women are going to have their day. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, Beth, I really want to hear about the experimental forest garden. Can you, des can you oh, describe yeah. that for us? Please. Yeah. How much do I have? About a minute? Got about five but then i have another question for you also oh, well, i'll so. just do it quickly we had a beautiful um hill in the backyard right at the edge of the house that went or i mean a ravine it went down into a valley and it had, there was a little creek flowing through there it was all forested and um a neighbor way back on the road let a drainage culvert plug up and the forest flooded totally and two years later all the trees were dead and mm. we looked down and what we had was a hundred year old garbage dump mm. all down the hill that we'd never known was there. So it took us six years to get the garbage out of there. And um, when we finally did, we realized that we had it. Finally, we had sun in our yard. Mm. And so I, I hired a, um, a guy somebody had recommended to me who we just hit it right off and we, we brought in, Oh man, I don't know how many tons of boulders we brought in. And he, he let me use the, the lift, you know, where I could get the, I mean, these were huge boulders oh, and, <laughs> and they, they set right into the side of the, of the valley so that we had planting beds that were safe to walk in going from the house all the way down to the swamp. Mm -hmm. And we had wanted to, you know, support bees, birds, and bugs like everybody else was. So we decided that it would be totally a perennial garden and it would feed them and feed us and it would emphasize flowers and um, berries. Just And it's crazy, but it's so fun to work in. And it's just grown. I, it, we, we have paths through it now so that the neighbors on either side can walk through the garden if they want to get to each other's houses so that the kids don't have to go out in the street. <laughs> when you said that the garden can feed uh, the birds and you. What what is edible for you, humans? Oh, the berries, the flowers, the grasses, um, the sometimes the leaves, vegetation. Um, I mean, we have apple tree, um, peaches, blackberries, mm. raspberries. Um, mm. Did you know that hostas are edible? No, I did not. I think I heard. Do that. not. <laughs> Yeah, when they're when they're right at that stage when their their little heads are just poking up and they look almost like asparagus, mm -hmm. they're just delicious. <laughs> I have hostas. I'll keep my eye out for that. <laughs> Don't let any, any hosta, any kind. Yeah, any kind. Mm. They're a delicacy in Japan. I found it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but I should say that you really do have to check your sources on what's edible. Yeah, I would think. <laughs> yeah. Because mm -hmm. I don't just stick it in my mouth much as I would like to. Yeah. 
I want to come back to something in the last couple of minutes that we have, Beth. And when you talked about healing yourself uh, and, and that trusting your own wisdom. And I'm wondering if it, you know, you're 74, uh, if you think about aging, growing older, um, how do you think about that? If, if you do. Denial. Denial? Is that what you said? <laughs> <laughs> Just want to make get that make clear. Denial, she says. <laughs> well, it's it's hard because you know sometimes I I'm noticing now you know like th- when they're talking about on the new some of the implications of the new technologies. Like today they were talking about in ten years having Los Angeles, my homeland, converted to um, a water system that comes entirely from home waste. Mm you know, from home toilet waste and Mm -hmm. showers. And I thought, boy, would I like to see that? Well, am I going to be alive in in Mm -hmm. 10? That's where it's hitting me because I just want to stay alive to see what's going to happen. I guess I don't. uh, Well, like, this is what I'll end up with. When the doctor told me that she thought I probably wasn't going to live that long and she she gave me a, a, a... prescription for a cranial prosthesis i've never that? heard of it <laughs> yeah well i hadn't either <laughs> <laughs> i took it to get it filled and you know what it turned out to be a wig <laughs> <laughs> and so i went and i thought okay if i she says you're gonna lose your hair and um i i bought this champagne colored wig and everybody said oh you look so cute and I didn't lose my hair. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah, and you know, so I started thinking, well, maybe she doesn't have the answers. Maybe I can control by attitude more of the time I have, mm-hmm. even if it's not longer. Maybe I, you know, you give up so much lifetime worrying. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's where I'm on that. <laughs> Thank you for that, Beth. Um, I just... Gail, I have one more question, but Gail, do you have a question or a comment? No, go please go okay. ahead. Um, so when I talked with Beth before before today, she said, "Oh, I I made I built a playhouse so that I could I could have a place to do my work." And, I, and so I'm thinking playhouse, you know, from olden times. This is she showed me pictures of her playhouse. This is no ordinary playhouse, mm-hmm. and. I don't know, Beth, can you just just give us a taste, a a sense of what your workplace, your playhouse is is like? It it was designed to feel like I was in California. It's um, got stucco walls on the outside and inside it's got um, uh, post and beam construction and um, it has scavenged Art Deco stained glass windows from uh, eBay, and it has a wood floor that's made out of um, floor timbers from a mill that was sunk in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And it has the most beautiful windows I've ever. Now I wanted to have the feel of um, the Sound of Music, you know, where I could open the windows out and <laughs> sing into the yard. Yes. <laughs> But I can I can play my violin in there. I have my speakers for um, listening to them and playing along. I have my saws for making the bull roars. I have um, 
a huge table that at this time it's got my plants that had to go in for the winter and has a grow light and um, it has a magic chest and that I got in an antique store, but it's just, it was, I was trying to do everything in the house and um, you know, on the kitchen counter, we have a very small house and um, no, really it's only 1200 square feet. And, but it's, it's, it just makes me happy to think that, you know, it took, it was a big chunk of money, but, you know, I figured why, why not? We don't go out for dinner. We like to eat in the yard. And it was just, it's so, it just feels good out there. It's all insulated so that I don't even have to heat it really. <laughs> when I saw those photos, I thought, I really, really want to come and visit you. <laughs> <laughs> so, Beth, um, thank you so much for giving us some glimpse into your living life as an insatiably curious anthropologist um, visionary. It's just been delightful. Thank oh, you so thank much. You. It has, yes, for sure. You guys ask great questions. I, I didn't feel uncomfortable at all. <laughs> oh, good. Thank you. And listeners, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Become an active participant in our community through our Facebook group. And no matter your age, participate in our monthly Zoom gatherings. You'll find everything you need to know about our Women Over 70 community on womenover70.com. See you next Wednesday on Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Thank you for listening to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. If you like what you've heard today, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. In what ways are you shattering the myths that women over 70 are no longer relevant or visible? How are you celebrating aging? Join with us. Make your voice heard. Find us at womenover70.com. <laughs>